This is Nick Enfield. I'm director of the Sydney Centre for Language Research and the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. And I'm talking today to Jackie Troy, who's director Indigenous Research within the office of the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at the University of Sydney. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Nick. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to talk to you. <laughs> see you on. I'd like to say. Warimi in the language of the Gadigal mob who, uh, whose country our Camperdown campus sits on. So you are the author of the book, The Sydney Language, which was published in 1993, going back away now, and uh, recently published again uh, in 2019. Can you tell us about the project that led to your book on the Sydney language and, and, and about the implications and the consequences that that, that that project has had today? Well, I started uh, the research about that language when I was at the University of Sydney as an undergraduate doing an honours in linguistics anthropology. And uh, I was interested actually in language contact and I wanted to know what languages were involved in the contact language mix, if you like, in the Sydney uh, environment from 1788 when the British first invaded uh, through into the middle of the 19th century. And uh, I went looking for books about the languages of the Sydney region, the Aboriginal languages, and surprise, surprise, there weren't any. And uh, but what there were, were manuscript materials and one of the most important manuscripts for Australian languages was uh, one created in the first three years of that British invasion period, the early colonial period as it's called. And this has been known as the Dawes Manuscripts, uh, written by um, a young Marine officer William Dawes, brilliant young man who spoke at least 12 languages and amongst his linguistic repertoire was ancient Greek and Latin and as he documented the language of Sydney he uh, used a Greek uh, I guess parsing paradigm for um, understanding the language which worked quite nicely because Australian languages work in some ways in a similar way to ancient Greek. So his verbal paradigms that he wrote were um, a really good information about how um, Australian languages as polysynthetic languages work. So I now call that set of information, those documents, the Batigarang documents, because um, the person that he collected most of his information from was a young Aboriginal woman from that Sydney area and she taught him her language. I became fascinated by that language and of course in order to know how it was influential in creating a pidgin language in southeastern Australia or in the mix that created the pidgin language of southeastern Australia, um, I had to reconstruct that language and that led me to uh, doing quite a large piece of work of reconstruction. At that time, doing linguistic history of that type, um, using documents to, if you, to, to actually recreate a language to understand what a language looked like, <clears throat> was not practice in Australia. It wasn't really practice much worldwide, except with existing ancient languages that people studied closely, like ancient Greek. But 
uh, it's now become a very established practice and it's a core practice within the new field of renewing languages um, called by various names, language revival, language reawakening. Um, so that's really the, the history of my work on the language of Sydney was an interest in pidgin and Creole languages that led me down the track of um, being involved in um, this quite new discipline, I guess, as a pioneer in that discipline. And did you have opportunities to talk to people in the communities in and around Sydney who, to, to whom the language had been passed down in, in some form or another? At that time, it was thought the language was dead. And um, I was coming from within the academy where a language that wasn't spoken actively like the language of Sydney was regarded as um, an extinct language. And a lot of the Australian languages were in that sort of category. Um, and many Australian languages were in the category of sort of last speaker, which we now know is not how it is. In fact, even where, where community have given up speaking their language actively on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't mean they've given up their language, which is why we've been able to renew languages. At that time, there wasn't really anybody coming forward saying, this is my language. It wasn't known whether anybody knew anything about the language. Um, I was well connected into the Aboriginal community in Sydney, which is a diverse community. There are people from all over Australia. Um, and the people who are of that original language, the Sydney language as I called it, because I couldn't find a name for the language in the early records. Many people still call it the Sydney language and now people are calling it by its clan name, depending on where you are in Sydney, which is probably more normal, um, would have been more normal even at the time when the language was first being documented. So, so can you say something about that? Um, you know, we hear the terms uh, Daruk and Eora, um, you know, people might be interested to know what the, the terminology is that's currently being used and, and, and sort of what the different areas of Sydney are that, that attract those different names. Yes, so there are about 27 or so clan groups documented at the moment and that are actively talked about by the Aboriginal people who are descendants of these clan groups who are actually these clan groups. And uh, so if you're in the Sydney CBD area um, on the place where Sydney University's main campus of Camperdown sits, you are in Gadigal clan country. And that's how the language would be described in that area as Gadigal. If you go out into Western Sydney, you end up in a place now called Parramatta, which is Burramatta. And the Burramattagal would be the people who were the clan group for that language. And it's the same language across the whole Sydney basin. So whether you're in Gadigal or Burramatagal country, you're, you would be speaking that language because of course languages have quite large territories. Um, there is a variation as you go across the Hawkesbury River in Western Sydney and head up into Gundangara country. Uh, there appears to be a different dialect of this Sydney basin language. And, but it's the, the information from the historical records, not very detailed, but it, suggests a few minor changes in um, the sound system. So you get a, a homogonic nasal stop, for example, as you go across the, the river. Um, so if you were saying the word manui on the coast, which is the word for foot, 
and you went across the river, you'd be saying Mandui. So um, that kind of thing. Um, and the words Iora and Daruk are still very current and people talk about being of the Eora nation. Now that comes from the word Dura, which is the word in the Sydney area for an Aboriginal person. So we know that's the distinction because there were other words for non-Aboriginal people who were coming into the country like the British invaders and they have words for stranger and so Yura means um, basically an Aboriginal person as in the same way that Kuri or Bama or Noongar or Nanga, Guri elsewhere in Australia. Uh, Daruk itself is a word that appears in the historical record in the late 19th century recorded by a man called William Ridley as the, the name for a language and of the Sydney area. And it was adopted in, by a man called Matthews, Reverend Matthews and other linguists, Arthur Capel later talked about, they sort of picked up on this word Daruk. Um, it's possibly also some kind of clan name or skin name or something. Um, and it gained currency more because academics, if you like, were using it. So the work you did on the Sydney language, I mean, it's a fantastic um, achievement to bring together the material that was available in, in, in the notes uh, and the records that, that you had. What's been the consequences and, and the impact over time since, since you published that work now that people can, can sort of go to one place and, and pull together that information? It's been um, you know, uh, 27 years now, and, and we have that new edition now. What, what's been the impact on, on communities in Sydney from that language work? It's actually been a, a rallying point, I guess, is the way I would see it. Um, so back to your earlier question about how um, Aboriginal people identified with or used this language at the time when I first started my research in the early mid eighties. Um, it's people have, um, come forward more and more saying, this is my language. Um, I know how to use it and using that book as a reference and a guide for a renewal of the use of the language. I, I prefer the word renewal to revival. Revival sounds to me a little bit like something has died and then has had to be resuscitated. And that's not what happens with language, languages coming back into use that haven't been used for a long time. It seems that there is this sort of knowledge and um, if you like an empathy for the language that uh, means when people begin to engage with using their language again, it, it becomes a very natural language use very quickly. I'm finding the same thing is happening for me with my own language, Narugu, of the Snowy Mountains in southeastern Australia, that um, the first time I ever said anything in my language, it, it had such an impact on me that I, I broke down. I just, I cried. I was, I was a keynote in front of 400 people at a linguistics conference and um, I had to really pull myself together. I had no idea it would have that impact on me. Um, and I, I still feel emotional when I speak anything in my language. And again, I'm using historical material. I'm using 
um, community enthusiasm um, as much as any active knowledge about the language. But this is what I've seen with the mob in Sydney, sorry, the Aboriginal people of Sydney. Of course, for anybody who's international listening, um, the word mob is how we describe ourselves as people. <laughs> so everything is a mob. Um, so the Sydney mob have um, really embraced this as a, as a kind of a document, but a living document is the way I'd put it, um, a springboard for them to engage with their own language practice. And I've been able to help people uh, use that document, um, think about how the words sounded um, when they were spoken as part of a very active language for every purpose, every day by everyone in the community. So we and, know that there have yeah. been, um, you know, very many languages spoken across Australia. Um, and, you know, and as you just mentioned, your own language is from quite some distance from here. Do you find that the groups that you've been working with and, and um, you know, your own uh, communities that there's a sense of, um, you know, collectivity beyond the different language uh, boundaries. You know, we know that people coming from different groups will have various rivalries or may have, you know, various kind of um, sense around what's, what's appropriate to do within or, you know, across different kinds of communities. How has the the sort of dynamic being for you as somebody from originally from outside of Sydney working together with people on on, on the language here? Um, well, I'm an insider outsider because I was born and raised in Sydney, um, so I've got a lot of contacts in Sydney and and in Aboriginal communities because Sydney's such a mixed place too for. Um, Aboriginal people there, as I said, people from all over Australia, including Torres Strait Islanders um, and people from Tasmania, so uh, Palawa. But we we generally incorporate people. So I'm not a complete outsider and being Aboriginal means that I, I have a connectivity. But you're quite right in, in talking about territoriality. Languages don't map necessarily onto clan groups. Um, as a so one a language won't be spoken by one only one clan group though they're usually spoken in a, a wider sort of socio-political territory so across the Sydney basin where there are multiple clan groups that are their own political and social units but um, where the boundaries um, meet if you like of language use they're generally a bit fuzzy people can be very um, very protective about the idea that their language is the language used on their country. So the idea of speaking somebody else's language on the country of the Sydney people, for example, is considered not very acceptable. Um, so if we were going to say teach a language in a Sydney school, people would prefer it was the language of Sydney. But they're also practical and understand that if the language of Sydney um, is not quite ready to be taught across all age groups because the knowledge and practice of the language is still in an early development stage. Uh, it's okay to teach other languages of Australia that are particularly ones that are related to this language. So any of the languages of Southeastern Australia are actually quite closely related. They're similar. Um, they belong to one big family called the Pamanyungan group, which is the, the majority of the languages of Australia. 
Um, and then there's this non-Palmanulan group, which is much more in the top part of Australia <clears throat> from Northern, Northern Territory across into the top part of Western Australia. Uh, so if you know, for example, something about the language of my country and, and know about, about how to speak that language, there's going to be quite a lot in common between that language and the language of Sydney, for example. The, the things that don't change when people move from territory to territory, country to country, as we say, um, like pronouns, um, body parts, uh, personal reference, uh, will be very, very similar. The things that do change are local vocabulary, lo um, you know, items, lexical items that describe the local environment or local practices. So plants, animals, um, specific kinds of artefacts that are made in one area, not others that are then traded elsewhere, will have the name from that area. I mean, it's much the same as it works with all languages around the world. We often have um, a, a name from another language in English for something that we've, um, you know, taken as an artifact from somewhere else. Right. Um, so the issue of uh, language revitalization, language uh, awakening, there are many different terms that are around um, these days. It's been a really important sort of focus for community-led research, uh, and I know that the experience in quite a lot of parts of Australia has been really important in developing this worldwide. Um, we had the UNESCO Year of Indigenous Languages last year and that ended with UNESCO announcing that they would soon kick off a decade of Indigenous languages. Um, so I just want to, before we finish up, ask you to talk about what you think the future holds that as we get ready to embark on this decade of Indigenous languages. What do you think is going to happen in Australia? What kinds of projects and what kinds of lessons do you think we're going to be able to apply across Australia, particularly in our, in our area, in the southeastern part? And, and, and how do you think that's going to inform how Indigenous language work is done worldwide? Well... For me, the wonderful thing, and I guess in some ways remarkable thing, is that um, going from the parable of my own experience in the early 80s, um, the languages of southeastern Australia were regarded as dead. Um, and indeed, we as the Aboriginal people of southeastern Australia were widely regarded as more or less dead or extinct as, a, as peoples. Um, which is kind of horrifying thought now from this year, 2020. Um, and it's hard to imagine myself back into that space where we were seen as um, at best half castes, um, coloured folk, um, some kind of remnant that had been um, dispersed, if you like, bred out and... Um, divested of our cultural practices and our languages to being strongly articulated groups of people. In Sydney, it's very common now for non-Aboriginal people to know clan names in Sydney. Um, when welcomes to country are done, they're done in the clan areas and people talk about the clan areas. So 
it's a relatively short time since the 80s when that would have been inconceivable in many ways um, publicly. Of course, the communities themselves have kept this knowledge and that's why it's been able to come so strongly back into practice, the sense of being clan groups and being identified with a language, uh, one or more languages, you know, 400 plus languages across Australia, that's 400 plus nations. And that information about the number of languages comes from very solid historical linguistic subgrouping work being done by Claire Bowen and others. Um, And um, so what we end up with now is a situation where going strongly into a decade of world Indigenous languages, we as the people, particularly in Southeastern Australia and Southwestern Australia, where we were widely regarded as no longer extant, uh, are now not just extant, but are taking a political place on the world stage. Most of the Black Lives Matters marches were in big urban centres in the southeast and the southwest of Australia. And um, these are marches where the African-American political movement was now lining up very solidly with international Indigenous movements for recognition and Australian Indigenous people have joined that. So, and you, you could see in these groups, if you know what you're looking at, people from many, many different clan groups and language groups coming together. Indeed, there were messages coming across the internet in languages of Southeastern Australia. My Nyampa friend, Leslie Woods, um, posted a message in Nyampa that um, was then shared virally. Um, for us as Aboriginal people too involved in the field of linguistics, we have formed a small collective, which is a very typical way of coming together as Aboriginal people. We're not very keen on the idea of one person being the boss over somebody else. So um, we have the Indigenous Alliance for Linguistic Research and a small group of us who are qualified in linguistics with master's degrees and PhDs. There's At the moment, unfortunately, I'm still the only Aboriginal person who has a doctorate in theoretical linguistics, but that's about to change with Leslie and a few others coming along uh, as well. Uh, We formed ourselves into a collective, so we're ready to make our mark on the field. And I think our own contribution will be very interesting. This is not to say that the contribution of other people, including yourself, Nick, who work with Indigenous communities worldwide and are very much part of the communities, um, you have an Indigenous sensibility. And this is what I think um, anyone who works with Indigenous communities gains. So I think there's going to be a um, into the future, this partnership between Indigenous linguists, so-called non-Indigenous linguists, who are part of our world, um, to be championing all Indigenous languages worldwide. I, as an Indigenous linguist from Australia, an Aboriginal Narugu linguist from Australia, I'm now working with um, Tawali people in North Pakistan and um, helping them to um, also engage politically with the business of getting their language more widely known. Last year, Sydney University, uh, myself and my colleague from North Pakistan, from Sawat, who's Tawali Mujahid, ran the, the Foundation for Endangered Languages international conference i think it's probably the first time that 
foundation ever had its national its international conference run by indigenous people exclusively um hosted by the sydney center for languages research indigenous languages node so that's the future indigenous linguists taking their place alongside all the other great linguists of the world and increasing our numbers and supporting our indigenous languages worldwide to go strongly into the future well, it's fantastic to see and um, I'm incredibly excited to see how all of these developments continue within the Indigenous Languages Node um, and also in your own work. So I look forward to more discussions. Uh, but for now, thanks very much for talking to us today, Jackie. So in the language of Sydney, didgeridoo and Yanu, which is thank you and goodbye.